0: This morning, I'd like you to join me in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We're going to be spending a little bit of time right here in this psalm. I've, I've uh, been on the other side, Psalm 22, for a little while. I've spent time in Psalm 23, and I thought, well, wow, we should do Psalm 24 while we're at it. Who is this King of Glory? It's what the psalm will ask us a couple of times. Who is this king of glory? Just listen along, read it as you have it in front of you. I'm going to read from Psalm 24, uh, all ten verses. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and salvation from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Heavenly Father, as we spend time in this passage, as we reflect upon who you are, I pray that uh, we might understand, especially through this section of scripture, understand who you are, that we might live appropriately, uh, that we might respond appropriately.
1: For here we
0: are given opportunity to live on this earth, and we live and move and have our being because of you. Too often we get thinking that life is about us. And I pray, Lord, that you might challenge us with these things that we begin today to study. We cannot learn your word, nor can we appropriate it without you. For without you, we can do nothing. But I pray, Lord, today that your work might be done. Your spirit might be active in our hearts. That we might be different for having spent this time with you today. And we give you the glory for that. For you are the King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. These uh, first words that David writes here in this psalm, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world, and those who dwell in it. That covers everything, doesn't it? The world, the things in the world, those who live in the world, who do they belong to? They belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. There's a proclamation in this psalm. You saw it as I read through that. Verse number 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He says that there. He says it again in verse 9. That the King of glory may come in. And it's met with a question both times Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of Glory? Now, initially, as I read through this, so I've I've grown up with this passage. It was in the responsive reading in the back of our hymn book, and every Sunday we had responsive readings, and and this passage was very familiar to me, too. Especially on Palm Sunday. This one would come up often. And we'd read these words. So I've, I've seen it many, many times, but... I had to stop and ask, uh, what a strange question. Who is this King of Glory? Twice it asked that. Who is this King of Glory? I I use my imagination at times to try to reconstruct the scene that the Psalms picture. It's not always easy to do, but... With the help of Hollywood, I think we've got some images in our head of, of Bible times and what they wore and things of that nature. And, and I, I think back on, perhaps, as I've been taught over the years, how similar this passage is to the triumphal entry of Christ. When he went into Jerusalem, that few days before he was betrayed and crucified, I could almost hear the same words being expressed there. And and even others who were asking, who is this? Who is this? As the crowds were proclaiming him him king. I read in some commentaries that uh, they believe this is a scene where David went out in the country to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. It was being held at a, a Levite's house after it had been captured by the Philistines and then brought back to Israel and it was kept there at his house for a long time it had been at the house and David wanted to bring it back into Jerusalem or into Jerusalem for the first time since he had conquered that city and uh, David formed a great a grand parade And when they finally got it right, you could read the story and see how they got it wrong the first time, but when they finally got it right, uh, we see David in front of the crowd as they're entering into the city. And scripture says he was dancing before the ark as it was brought in to the city on that day. And there are many commentators who think that perhaps this is the scene he's portraying to us when the ark was brought into the city of Jerusalem. Well, there certainly is a display of a king approaching the city. That is very clear. The king is approaching the city. You could imagine the walls are high. You could imagine there are even soldiers posted up there on the wall, and they can see the procession from miles away, marching toward the city as it approaches. There's a herald that cries out, To those manned gates. Open the gates. Lift them up. Open the doors. The king of glory has arrived. Let him in. From the other side of the gate, there's a voice that's heard. Who is this king of glory? The sentry might just simply be doing his job. He might simply be doing his job. You know, all visitors must identify themselves. You can't even get into the Christian school anymore without that. Everyone's got to identify themselves before we let them in. I would think, maybe it was just I had a little time to work this through, and you might agree with me, that if this king were recognized, there would have been no question at all. To opening the door. They might have had it opened ready. As he approached. If they had known. Who this was. But twice that question appears. Who is. This king of glory. What does that suggest. Just by the simple question. Either that those who watch the city. Are ignorant of who this person is. They just don't know. They have no idea. So they have to ask about him. What are his credentials? Where is he from? What right does he have to enter here? Maybe they're just ignorant of who he is. Or, maybe they do know who he is. But they refuse to acknowledge him. This is something I was thinking through as I worked through this. They stand behind their tall, guarded walls and thick gates. Imagine, and this again is my imagination, and I wonder if it might be there. The question is more like a sneer. Their tone is somewhat mocking. They do not think him to be a king, much less their king. Maybe the right way to read this question is with the accent of opposition. Who is this King of Glory? In the last month, we've been looking at Psalm 22, a psalm that depicted the suffering of our Savior. We found that to be a very difficult psalm, even though it's beautiful in what the Lord has done for us. That he took our sin upon him. Our our sins. That's just an incredible thing to reflect upon. But all the way through that, there were mocking voices, weren't there? Voices mocking him, even as he was dying for us.
1: On that cross, the incredible
0: anguish felt as his father even turned away from him. That's Psalm 22. We... We can go through Psalm 23, but I've been sharing with that, that with you for the course of uh, four years, actually, in the quarterly newsletter. I keep adding a little bit to our study of Psalm 23. It starts with those famous words, the Lord is my shepherd. And throughout that psalm, the evidence is laid before us that the Lord performs the role of a shepherd. As he cares for his sheep, he, he feeds them, he protects them, he leads them, he provides for them. In every single way. That's why we add, I shall not want. The reality is that he is a good shepherd. That's undeniable. The only question that the entire psalm asks us, really, can we legitimately say the Lord is my Shepherd. He is my shepherd. So now we come to this third psalm, which I call that the trilogy 22, 23, 24. We've moved from the suffering Savior to the sufficient shepherd to the undeniable, irrefutable, undisputable, incontestable, unquestionable soul. Sovereign. I'll make it sound like I'm announcing a prize fighter, huh? Yet, these three Psalms together do give us the essence of who Christ is to us. He's our Savior, He's our Shepherd, and He's our Sovereign. And I think it's right, after following the study of the death of our Savior... To take time to speak of his sovereignty. For even this is the pattern that the Bible presents to us. In Philippians chapter 2, a passage we've been to quite a number of times in the last few weeks actually. There's a handful of verses here that we are reminded of. I'm going to read it to you here. Philippians 2, starting in verse number 5, works its way all the way down to verse 11. This is a pattern we see. We go from suffering, a suffering Savior, to a sovereign Lord. See, we live on this side of the cross, don't we? Isn't that a great place to be? We live on this side of the cross. We We know Jesus Christ to be our Savior. I trust you do. As I look out among you, and for those who have been here, For many, many years, and the just blessing I have to know you, I would say for most of us, we'd say, yeah, we know him as Savior. We also recognize him as our shepherd. He's busy right now caring for us, leading us, guiding us, feeding us, providing for us. But what do we say about the fact that he's sovereign? What do we say about that? I don't think the picture is complete if we do not recognize him as such. For years, the debate has been going on, mostly on the theological level pertaining to the recognition of Jesus. All sides agree that he is to be known as Savior. Yet there seems to be a debate as to whether or not it's required to recognize him as Lord. Guess what? He is Lord. He is Lord. Whether you believe that or not, he is Lord. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Those were the words of Peter. When he preached to the Jews in Acts chapter number 2, Forty days after they had crucified Christ, they heard those words, God has made Him both Lord and Christ. And it pierced their heart. And they came to know Him and responded to Him by faith. These words are essential words. They're not words that we just brush under the the, you know, communion tables or something just because... People don't like the idea that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. is Lord. God has made it so. So I hope these things pierce our hearts too as we look at our sovereign Lord here. There's something significant as we look at this passage. Something significant that I, I found when I was taking a quick view of it all. Here's the funny thing, I think there is no verse 11 to say that they welcomed him in. You have him up to the door. You have him standing there and the announcement, open the door! We don't have verse 11 to say that they did. Does that strike you as funny? It did me. I said, huh, that's interesting. And then that other question I've already raised with you, What does it suggest that they ask those questions? Who is this King of Glory? Is it because they did not recognize him, or because they did not desire him? This psalm begins with the fact of his sovereignty. By virtue of the fact that he is the creator, that he is the possessor of the earth, the one who Founded it. The one who established it. Doesn't that speak to his authority over it? David says the earth is the Lord's. Verse 1. And all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas. Established it upon the rivers. Now here we can revisit this great theme as it's given to us in several places in Scripture. In Genesis it begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then we travel all the way into the book of John and the very first words out of his mouth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in the beginning he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. All things. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Direct creation, no evolution. God made it. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. How many times does God have to say it? Till we start to say, yes, all things by him were created, it says. Both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, and I can't find another category. He's covered it all that way. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And in case you think that they're done saying it, it pops up again in Hebrews. Right away in chapter number 11 faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This fact is laid before us in such a simple manner. Over and over and over. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. That's possession. Possession. It is His. Possession. The contents of the earth is His. All All, you like that word? All it contains. All it contains. It is His. The world and those who dwell in it are His. They are His. Its population belongs to Him. I'm going to specify something very important here. Because in case you're starting to wonder, well, it's great, everybody is a believer. No, that's not what that says. You belong to the Lord. Does the Lord belong to you? There's a difference between those two. You belong to the Lord. This world belongs to the Lord. It's unfortunate the world does not recognize that. They live as if their life is their own. Have you ever noticed that? The world belongs to him. You know, a pastor doesn't really have to go very far in his explanation to prove that the population of the world does not believe that. It does not. It does not want to believe that It's a reality. The Lord is sovereign. He owns it all. How blessed are those who do know that and recognize him as Lord. Yet, they cannot deny him as creator. He is the creator. He is sovereign. It doesn't change the fact that they refuse to acknowledge it. The fact is, he is the king. He is the king. Have you ever thought this through? How foolish it really is that Satan offered him the kingdoms of this world by way of temptation just to get him to worship him. That is such a ridiculous concept to me when I think it through. Satan was a created being. He knew who created him. He knew who created this world. And he offered that to Jesus? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Romans chapter 1 speaks well of our world we live in. Not just the one that's been in, in history, but the one that's in present as well. Romans 121, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. First thing. They did not honor Him as God. You don't see it often anymore, do you? The world, leaders of the world, standing up and honoring God as God. Nor, he says, did they give thanks. The truth of the matter is, everything we have is from him, right? If he owns it all, he's given it to us, that we might live and move and have our being. He's given us those things. When's the last time we stopped and said thank you? Thank you for what you've given to us. Is the world going to stop and say that to him? No. Matter of fact, they refused to. And that's what Romans is telling us. They did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it said this in Romans 128. Just a fascinating phrase that, that just boggles the mind. Listen to these words. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. I'd stop right there. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. What is that? They did not see fit. Well, I had to dig up that word. What do you mean, fit? It's the word that they used to use. If you're going to test a coin, you know the old movies where somebody pays them in money and they bite it, you know, test it, see if it's true. That was the word here. As if, as if, they tested God and said, oh, he's phony. As if, God's identity was based on their approval. Based on their opinion. They did not see fit. Who are they? Who is it that can stand up and evaluate whether or not God is God? They did not see fit. Isn't that a powerful phrase? They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, it says. That reminds me of Psalm 2. When I go back to Psalm 2, I, I see another set of Psalms here that are incredible. But it starts, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people devising a vain, vain thing? The kings of the earth have taken their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us tear their feathers, fetters, fetters, that's chains, apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth, look up into heaven. And say, he's had enough ruling. We've decided. And they considered his authority over them to be chains and cords. Let us break them. He who is in the heavens, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who are these people? You know, it, it is a sad thing. Maybe that's a weak word. But it's a sad thing that the world does not recognize its Maker. We live in that day. But even sadder than that is when we do not recognize our Maker. He is sovereign. That has not changed, and it will not change. That is true today. That is true right now. He is sovereign. We face a lot of things in life, don't we? Challenges, difficulties, hard decisions, challenges in the workplace, at home. All kinds of things come to us. And once in a while we pull out the word sovereign. Say, well, yeah, I think it's good and appropriate right here to say God is sovereign. It's good and appropriate always to say He is sovereign. Sovereign. But we only choose to use it on special occasions. He is Lord. Always Lord. He is sovereign. Always sovereign. And sometimes I think we get in the habit of living as if he's not. I say that gently, but I say it in a convicting way. Right? I hit you with a soft hammer. So often we go through our life With things revolving around us. Thinking our way. Doing our way. Using our strength. Following our wisdom. But all the while he's sovereign. If you follow the trends of our day. Just watch the news. What have you noticed lately? Have you noticed how believers in this world are being attacked? Murdered? Sneered at, targeted, abused, threatened. We see that on the world front, don't we? We say it's over there, we see it over there, we see it in the Middle East. We see it in African continent. We see it in the European territories and such. We see those things happening over there. Do we see it in our own nation? Do we see businesses and people threatened because they wear the name of Christ? Do we see that that those who choose to identify themselves as Christians and refuse to compromise their convictions are being sneered at? And feeling persecution. Our tendency is to run and hide. Our tendency is to see the struggle for control of the world and those who think they dominate and those who want to rule the masses, they think that they have the upper hand and we as Christians ought to cower, we ought to hide, we ought to run, we've got to be quiet, certainly don't say anything about the Lord, don't declare him as sovereign. That's what the world wants for you. That's what they want for me. Be quiet. Don't say those things. Don't 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 advertise that. Don't let them know. You know, the Apostle Paul at one time thought he was doing the Lord a favor by getting rid of Christians. He found he cannot kick against the Lord's plan. That will not work. You can't go against the Lord's sovereignty, no matter how hard you try. I would say that we as believers desire A place to live where Christ's name is honored and glorified. We long for that, don't we? Peter said that day will come. There will be a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, we're going to be there. I can't wait. But Jesus prayed for his disciples because he said, In this world you will have tribulation. But, take courage. And you know what his next words were? I have overcome the world. Who's sovereign? He is. He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for us as well in John 17. Because you're going to live in a world that hates you. Hates you. At this point, you're starting to feel uncomfortable. You're starting to think, Wow, Pastor, you're really giving us a hard one today. How are we going to enjoy our meal? How are we going to go from here smiling all you talk about is persecution and difficulty and how the world is. Oh, well, it's all true. It's all true. We live in a world where wearing the name of Christ is mocked. We live in a world where we desire to retreat. I know that. I'm a retreater too. I have birds as my new pets. My kids are starting to worry about me a little bit. I now have four birds. I started with one. When they go off to college, I go out and buy another one. <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got four birds now. And they're all in one cage. Um, and so every morning, I would get up and I'd go and talk to them a little bit. And, and only one of them likes me, I think. But uh, I
1: filled her little
0: feed reservoir and I, I change their water and things. And yesterday, something kind of funny happened. I thought that was interesting. I... I took the water dish out, and I, I cleaned it, and I hung it back up in there, and the one bird that's friendly enough, we call her honey bird, she's friendly enough to come and sit on my finger and things, she was diving into that little empty plastic square container. It, it's not much bigger than, you know, two and a half inches either way, and she's getting into that, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange, there's not even water in it, but she kept Jumping down inside of it. And I I started to pour some water in and and she just kept going back in and and such. And I said, oh, she wants to take a bath. So I got this great idea. I I got a bowl and I filled it with water and I set it inside the cage. And they were scared to death. (laughs) What is that? And they retreated to the furthest corner they could find in the cage. They all stood there looking down. Like What is that? And I watched them for about a half hour. It's just fun to do. But they would slowly look, and then they'd take a step, and then they'd jump down on the next perch for a second and jump back up again, just to see if it moved. And they, they, it took a good half hour before they got anywhere close to it. But they were scared. And I found that's true most of the time, that they're scared. You, you set something in there new, and they don't know what to do with it. A friend sent me a... Um, a giant, uh, well, they seeds compressed in some sort of honey or something like that. It's in the shape of a raccoon. I put it in there this morning. They've got to be terrified by now just to see that raccoon staring at them. But maybe I'd like that. But they they are afraid. And, and I, I was just thinking through that picture as I watched them for nearly a half hour yesterday and then every time I went back into the room, how they'd nudge a little closer and then back up. Nudge a little closer. If that bull had said something or moved or something, they would have burst out of that cage. Birds are like that, aren't they? They're fearful. They're fearful. They, they, that's the way God designed them, to fly quickly, to get away from trouble. And I thought, you know, is that the way God designed us? Something comes that, you know, we don't know what it is. It's contrary to what we think. We're not sure it belongs here. It's certainly something frightening. So we run. We run. We do that often, don't we? Just like those little birds. We've got to get away from it. We declare the Lord is king of glory. And every time there's opposition to it, do we shrink back? When we say the Lord is king and somebody says, who is this king? Do our tones get softer? Our voices a little weaker? Our willingness to say things become less? Because we now see the walls and we see the gates and we see the sentries and we hear the world behind its fortress that it has erected and set up this kingdom. We see them with no legitimate King, and we have him. And there's no one greater. And yet their voice is louder than ours. And we hesitate. We're fearful. This one that we speak of owns the world. We just saw that, right? And all it contains. And all who dwell in it are subject to him. And yet, what are we subject to? I've been reading through Nehemiah chapter, well, chapter, the whole book. But when I got to chapter 4 yesterday, if you travel over there, you'll find something fascinating going on in Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah was building the city of Jerusalem. It had been smashed by the enemy, by Babylonians, and had laid that way for some length of time. And uh, Nehemiah was there to rebuild the city. Now, it's hard enough to rebuild anyway, after the timbers have been burnt and the rocks have been scattered. And we're not talking small rocks here. Huge, huge, huge wall blocks. And (coughs) he's there to have that built. Now, that's one problem anyway. and There weren't many people to assist in the test. But add to it, on the outside were enemy voices. Those who did not want that city built. And they tormented Nehemiah and the people. Threatened them. Sought to assassinate him. All kinds of things going on in this book that would cause anyone to question whether or not it's the right timing to build this wall after all. You know how we we view it, things like that sometimes. Little opposition is our sign, right? Gotta quit. Gotta quit. So Nehemiah is out there building and here comes in chapter 4. came about when Sanballat heard. Sanballat, that's a bad guy, okay. Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the walls. He became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, also a bad guy, was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone walls down. Now, that's a really clever statement, isn't it? If a fox should jump on it, it would fall down. Hear, Nehemiah says, hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their approach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the the Arabs and Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them... We set up a guard against them day and night. Thus it was in Judah. It was said, the strength of the burden bearing is failing. There is much rubbish. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the walls. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest part of the space on the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officers, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You could stop right there and that's sufficient, isn't it? Notice his words to a fearful group. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. It's easy to take our eyes off that when you've got something frightening coming down the aisle at you. Remember, our God is great and awesome. That's his words to them by the way, they built the wall. He is our sovereign king. He is our sovereign king. Remember, Nehemiah said, remember the Lord. On this side of the cross, there is one way in which we must live. We must live in light of the fact that our Savior and our Shepherd is our sovereign. He is our sovereign. He is not only the king, he is our king. Our king. Now I've spoken from a position on this side in reference to this psalm. David is its author. We are not told the circumstances of Psalm 24, what prompted these words, and perhaps a lot of our ideas might just be speculation. But David would go on to be one of the greatest kings Israel would ever see. And yet it's interesting. As doors might have been opened for him and gates might have been opened for David as he, his name is declared. David never spoke of himself as the sovereign one. He was always quick to acknowledge that the Lord is his sovereign. The Lord is his sovereign king. And David had his share of opposition, didn't he? He had some great challenges to his faith. His life was on the line several times. It appeared he was soon to lose it in many occasions. But how often David reverted back to the thinking that the Lord was his Lord. That was what he remembered. This is my God. Seems like a good thing for us to recognize as well. No doubt we face circumstances and challenges and oppositions, perhaps even in our faith. If you haven't yet, you might, and it might be soon. Maybe maybe you've been encouraged to walk away from your convictions. Maybe you've been threatened into silence. Maybe you felt it safer to hide than to be a target. How shall we, who have just celebrated the resurrection of our Lord, think less of Him in the fact that He is King of glory? Is He? He is. All this world is His. All it contains is His. Do we need to be fearful birds while our sovereign reigns? The world will not choose to recognize Him. But I will declare Him. I will declare Him. The Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He is the King of glory. Heavenly Father, we need this psalm. We need it now. We live in a world that's very much in opposition to you. How are we then to live? Keep us remembering, of, remembering who you are. Our sovereign Lord. The King of glory. Draw our attention to that this week. And each week as we spend time in this passage, challenge us thoroughly with it so that we will live in light of a sovereign Lord knowing He's active in our life now and always. And there's no one greater. Keep that in our minds and cement it in our hearts, we pray. For we have come here to worship the Sovereign King. And we do give you the glory. The glory for what you have done for us, but also we seek to give you the glory for what we're going to do with the rest of this day the rest of this week. May your name be praised in what we say and what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.